Welcome once again as we continue our series on the book of Psalms. We are studying each chapter verse by verse. We love the expositional teaching of the Word of God. We believe it gives us the depth and the breadth of the heart of God for all matters of life. We're looking at Psalm chapter 16 today. The title is The Preservation of the Saints. So let's pray and ask God to touch our hearts and give us ears to hear. Father, I pray for wisdom from on high. I pray for words that would be life-giving. I pray for an alteration in our hearts and our minds and our lives in the areas that you would so be gracious enough to convict us of, to transform us, and to renew us in our minds and our behavior. All these things come from your word, and we are so grateful. And as we look at the 16th chapter, make it alive to us. We give thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you Psalm chapter 16. It starts off by saying, A midtime of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also he instructs my heart. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Just starting to look at this passage, it starts off with this word called a miktam, and it's not a very well-known word. Hebrew, it doesn't translate very well, but the best commentaries that I found, uh, and I I think I found something that is important for us to start this chapter with, as I suggest, the meaning here is, is from the Hebrew verb to hide or to conceal, and it doesn't mean uh, hide me or conceal me. What the significance of this is, there's something in this chapter the writers want to tell us that is, uh, uh, that is a depth of truth, a depth of understanding. Uh, James Frame, way back in 1858, wrote this about this, this one word here. says, this word means indicating a depth of doctrinal or spiritual import, which neither the writer nor any of his contemporaries had phantomed. In other words, there's something about this that is prophetic. There's something about this word that we're about to read that will reveal things uh, that that could not be revealed just by human wisdom. Uh, Andrew Bonner says of the same word this, this, that, that this word signifies that this chapter is so important that he says it is meant to be hung up or inscribed on a pillar to commemorate victory. Uh, so you could see the picture of this, that this psalm would be put on a pillar or inscribed in stone, chiseled in stone, so that all the people could see it to describe the victory, the preserving victory, the keeping power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're talking about today, how God can keep you. And the victory celebrated here is a defeating of our enemies. The victory celebrated here is overcoming death. The victory celebrated here is finding eternal salvation and security in Christ. And the victory here is at the prophesying of a coming Messiah, a whole-in-one chapter, 
all in a short amount of verses, all, all found in, in these 11 verses. And the victory is described here in one of the first words mentioned in verse 1. The first word of this verse sets in motion all that the Psalms ha psalm has to offer. One word is the door that opens the precious promises of God that we just described of the defeating the enemies and overcoming death, finding eternal salvation, and uh, prophesying uh, an understanding of what the Messiah would be doing for us. All of these precious promises are in this one word about God's keeping power. David describes six wonderful promises that will keep you, bless you, encourage you, protect you, and keep you from defeat, despair, and the entrapment of sin. And if we take these six precious promises by faith, it will bring an unparalleled life transformation. What is that word? What is this one word that starts this powerful text that we're studying today? And it's the word preserve, preserve me. Another way of saying this word would be to keep me. Some translate this word keep me. Oh, how precious, my friends. Oh, how precious, saints of God, that we are kept by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are kept by the holy promises of God. That which he speaks, he keeps. And he has spoken to existence our salvation. He's spoken to existence our peace. He's spoken to our existence our connection with God. He expect he spoken to, to existence our communion with him and our community with each other. These are the precious promises, the keeping promises, the powerful promises of God. Break down this word a little bit. If you check the spelling of this, preserve is actually two words, pre, before, serve. He's already serving before we, and this is precious in one of the promises of God. Even before we ask, he's already at work. Even before we hear the promise in our ear or hear it through the word, he has already spoken those promises into existence, and we by faith then enter into them. It's not like today he's going to come and say, uh, I've never made this promise before, but I'll make it today to you for you know because you're special to me. Yes, we're special to him, but he's already made the promise even more special. Pre to serving us in the need that we find in our hour, God has already spoken. God has already been at work. God has already provided the power. God has already provided the promise. How powerful that he is already looking out for you even before you have a need, even before you're in trouble, even before you cry out in prayer. He has pre-served you. And that's part of this preserving that God has for us. In this text, we see two things that this preserving, this keeping does. It is, it is preserving us from something, from wickedness, from evil, from trials, from troubles, from, from pain. He's preserving us from falling. And the other thing is he's also preserving us from, from death. We see here, later on, we'll see that he's talking about Sheol or hell or death. Uh, so, so it's, it's, it's both things we face while we're living here on earth and our future inheritance for eternity. The Hebrew word here for preserve has, has several different meanings. It can be preserved from certain things or it can be preserved for certain things as well. He's not only keeping us from evil things and preserving us from keeping us from falling into trials and temptations and giving into them, but he's also keeping us to, keeping us into, keeping us... Uh, engaged in our inheritance, keeping us moving forward, keeping us in the promises that God has for us. The Hebrew word here has, has several different meanings as well. The first time it's used is significant. Whenever you study something in Scripture, there's a thing called the, 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 the first mention or the first use. 
And what you do is in the Hebrew or Greek, you find out the first time it is mentioned. And it sort of lays a foundation, a, a track, if you will, for all the words to come. The significance is found in the first word. And many uh, uh, scholars of, of Hebrew and Greek will tell us that. And the first time this is mentioned is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where God tells Adam and Eve to be keepers. We read it in our English Bible oftentimes as tending the garden. The Hebrew word there is the same as this Hebrew word here preserve or keep, tend the garden. So, so when David is, is asking the Lord to preserve him here, he's not just saying in a defensive stance, but he's also saying, give me the ability or help tend the garden of my heart, of my life, of my family, of my mission, of my ministry, of my calling, of, of my nation even. Lord, Lord, tend to this garden and give me power to, under your authority, to tend to this Garden. David is asking to cultivate, to, to grow in life, uh, to be part of the Garden of Eden. Tending was to be fruitful and multiply. So David is here saying, Lord, these areas that we're about to talk about, would you not just keep me from falling away from them, but would you multiply the power of the preserving power of all these things, these, these wonderful promises that you have in this chapter that he's about to ask God, he wants God to be for him what Adam and Eve were meant to be for the garden, someone who would come into his life and tend and grow and multiply in his own life. And that's what he's, as we read this, these are promises for us as well. It's not, as I said just a moment ago, it's not exclusively a defensive request to keep him from falling into evil, but it's a progressive desire. Keep tending my heart. Keep tending my life. Keep tending my family. Keep tending my work. And even tend to our nation he was the leader of a nation. The problems that he saw in his nation, he was asking God to preserve, to keep the, 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 the promises of God alive, keep the faith in the nation alive. We, we need to pray this prayer as well. God, for our nation, we, we pray for America, God. We pray for whatever nation you're from that you're listening to this online today, praying that God would change the hearts of, if the wicked leaders be over us, that God, you would change their hearts tend to the course of our nation, move in our nation, God. Move us off this path of corruption that we're on right now. Move us off this path of spiritual declension. Move us off this path of sexual perversion and immorality and, and a depraved mind. Move us off that, God, and, and keep us back into that place of standing firm in the faith of our fathers. <clears throat> it is also translated, there's a lot here, isn't there? It's also translated as being a watchman, looking out for protection, or a warning against evil. Oftentimes the prophets of old were called to be a watchman on the wall, and if they did not warn when the enemy was coming into the near the walled cities and, they were, and the enemy was attacking, if they did not warn the people in the city to prepare for battle, the blood of the city was held on their account. It was it, they, they paid the price with their own blood for not guarding the blood of the people. And so this word here, as, as David is crying out, the psalmist is crying out, is saying, God, be a watchman. When, 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 when you, you see the enemy coming after me, when you see wickedness coming and maybe getting near to my heart or, or lust or pulls or powers of this age begin to come against me, I, I ask you, God, would you be a watchman in the wall of, over the wall of my life? It also means to guard. Uh, it was used in the Old Testament as a word uh, to guard, to bodyguard uh, someone in royalty. You would guard that person at risk of your own life if you were to let down your guard. And this is what God does for us. He says, I, I will not let my guard down. I will not sleep. I, I, I don't slumber. 
I'm watching over you. You don't need to worry. You don't need to fret. You don't need to fear because God is for you and not against you. Today we need preservation to be preserved from this wicked generation uh, around us. We need to be preserved and kept with a clean mind and a pure heart and not give in to the things we see around us. It's so pervasive. You can't even turn on the television. You can't pick up a magazine or a newspaper without being impacted by all the wickedness that's going on around us. And so the cry of David is so real for us today. Lord, preserve me. Keep my mind focused on you. Keep my heart clean. Keep my eyes pure that I might see you and not fall into compromise. And we find not only that is pervasive in the nation, but sadly, and I would say even more of a crisis for those of us that are Christians, is the stuff that's seeping into the church today, the compromise, the lukewarmness, the false teachings that are taking place uh, in many quarters around the world today. These are things that we need to be kept from. God, keep us from being mixed up with this world, but keep us from being mixed up with the world seeping into the church and therefore we taking on worldly characteristics in the body of Christ and giving ourselves over to that. Keep us from that, God. Keep us pure. Keep our minds solid. Keep us in solid doctrine. Keep us, Lord, deep into the word of God that we're not leaning on our own understanding. Keep us, God, from the perversion of the culture and of the perversion of the church that's around us. The Bible uses this word many times. Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, God speaking to Jacob says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I'll keep you in the midst of journeys, but I'm going to bring you back to this land. I'm going to keep you in the land, the inheritance that I have for you. Second Peter in the New Testament uses this idea of keeping or preserving as well. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 5, and then on to verse 9, it says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved, that's the word keep, he preserved Noah right in the midst of that wicked generation. He kept a man and his family holy and pure. And God can do that for me. God can do that for you. No one lives in such a wicked generation that the power of God cannot prevail even more so in that heart, to keep that man or woman pure, to keep that family pure, to keep that church pure, to keep that ministry pure. God wants to have a people preserved even in the midst of those difficult situations. He kept Noah, the herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. If the Lord can do that for Noah, it says here then in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment. Part of this prayer of keep is not only that he would keep us pure, but Lord, that there would be judgment. And we don't do this um, with a haughty spirit. We don't do this with delight, but we do it over Lord. Bring judgment on that thing. Lord, let, let judgment begin in the house of the Lord. Lord, let judgment begin in my own heart. Lord, rid everything in us, in our church, in our cities, in our nation, in our schools that don't belong. God, that you might restore once again and preserve righteousness wherever we go. John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus is praying this this prayer, the same word that's preserved, this keep, is called his high priestly prayer in the 17th chapter. And he says of of the saints, he says of of his brothers and sisters, his children, I have kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus kept them, and he guarded them. He kept by his promise, and then he guarded over that promise. And that's what he's doing for you and I today. 
every precious promise that we're about to hear in this chapter and everyone and all, throughout all of Scripture, every promise is yes and amen and cannot be thwarted by any other power when God is doing this work of keeping and guarding over us. Jesus himself prays when he's at his most difficult hour. He's in what's called the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross and experience the most dreadful crucifixion his blood being shed, not only that, the, the wrath of God being poured upon him, and that wrath was the cup of, the dregs of the cup of sin. The sins of the whole world were being placed on the Son of Man, the Son of God. And he was to drink this cup, and as he's drinking this cup, he knew it would be poured into him. Every murder, every rape, every, every sin would, would be, be placed upon him. Not that he would have committed any one of those or was guilty of any of those sins, but, but he was they were placed on him just like the sin was placed on the in the Old Testament on the sacrificial lamb by the, the hand of the priest being placed on the head of the goat. This is what Jesus, he was going to, to, to take our sin upon him. And just as he was about to drink that cup, he, he says, Lord, keep, he asks his disciples to, to keep watch over, to preserve with him the, the power of prayer that, that he might be able to endure the, the cross ahead of him, uh, but they are not able to keep. But then in, in Matthew 26, 42, Jesus reveals the keeping is not always a keeping us from suffering. The keeping is not always keeping us from sacrifice nor keeping us from pain in life, but the greater joy and honor of being kept in the center of the Father's will. Jesus was praying, keep me faithful. Hallelujah. God, the greatest prayer we can pray when we're praying keep is to keep me faithful. We can pray, yes, keep me from trouble, keep me from trials, keep me from tribulations, keep me from falling, all those wonderful prayers. But the primary prayer of this keep is the word, keep me faithful. Lord, keep me at the center of your will. Let me endure whatever you have. And while I'm enduring it, stay pure, stay holy, stay faithful to you and the call of God you have on my life. The second part of this first verse, and we'll be moving a little bit faster in just a moment, but I want to uh, get to, uh, is, it says, Preserve me, God, for in you I take refuge. The precious promise of keeping and protecting comes from those who look at this word here. He says here, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The promises are to those who take refuge in him, not to those who take refuge in church or culture. But the question is being answered here, where do we find our hope? How do we find this preservation? Not from wisdom of the world not through philosophy, not through our cleverness, not through a five-year plan of success, not through our moral fortitude, not through picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, not through psychological insight, but by being in him. Church, if you will get into him, get into his word, get filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll find yourself receiving all of these promises. You're not trying to strive to obtain the promises. They are found in this one thing of being in him, in him you find life. In him you find power. In him you find truth. In him you find rescue. And so be in him by surrendering your whole heart to him, by stepping into him in faith and saying, Jesus, take the helm of my life. You lead. You guide. You orchestrate. I, I lay down all my plans. I lay down all my schemes. I lay down all my personal ambitions. And I ask you, God, to let me be just in you so that that's the place of my refuge. Oftentimes we don't trust God enough. And when we don't trust him, we look to our own strength. We lean on our own understanding. And therefore, we lose the power of the promise. The promise still stands, but we lose the power. It's as if we're deactivating in our own life by uh, ill choices that we are making. 
Psalm 2.12 is the very first place David mentions this word refuge, and it's in context of nations raging. Remember that? that we, we studied that. If you haven't seen that video yet, go back to Psalm chapter 2, and you'll see in there, why do the heathens rage? Why do they plot vain things? Why do they speak against the Son of Man? And you see, in the midst of this plotting against righteousness, there's a blessing of those who take refuge in him, take refuge in the Son, and it uses the phrase, kiss the Son. In other words, be near, be in him, be close to him, be intimate with him, come, come into his bosom, come in to know him well. And in that place, there's guidance and protection and powerful promises available to each and every one of us. That's good news, isn't it, my friend? <clears throat> uh, we, we, we continue on by saying, refuge is not a fearful cowering in a cave. It's not saying I have to hide out because the troubles are overwhelming me and I just can't bear them anymore and I'll just shut my system down. No, Psalm 5.11 tells us, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy. So refuge is not just, I'm in such bad trouble, put me in a place where I can withstand the storm. No, it's in the middle of the storm. You're delighting in the Lord. You're taking joy. You're rejoicing. You're even singing for joy because the refuge is such a powerful protection. It leaves no room for fear. It no, leaves no room for anxiety. If you're anxious at night and you're, you're up in the middle of the night and you're worried about situations, finances, family, marriage, job, if you're worried about those things, you need to be brought into this place of refuge. Ask the Lord, take me into that place of refuge where I can just bask in the power that you have for me that I can know that your protection is not just enough, sufficient, just enough to keep me from harm, but to let me be filled with joy. And, and it turns your sorrow and your mourning into dancing and your sorrow into joy. That's what God does. He transfers things as you find yourself in this first verse and says, in you, oh God, I take refuge. It's, it's in you. Now, we've looked at just at the introduction, the midtime of David, and we looked at the first verse, preserve me, oh God, for in you I take refuge. Let's move to the uh, the next verses. And in the next uh, nine or so verses, 10 verses, you are about to see, uh, I would say s at least six precious promises, promises of the preservation, the, 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 to pr help you preserve, be preserved, to, to be strong in the things that God has for you. There's, there's six of them. First, I would say, is in verse two, keep us or keep me in communion. The second one is in verse three or four, keep us in community. Verse five and six, keep us in our chosen portion that you've given to us, the chosen portion. Verse seven, keep us in counsel. Verse eight, keep us confident. And verse nine through 11, keep us from corruption of the body, being put in Sheol, being put in hell, being put in decay, keep us from that corruption. These are six of these precious promises that God has for us. And I want to just briefly take you through each one of them, starting with verse two. And the first of these six precious promises is keep us in communion. I say to you, Lord, you are my Lord. I have no God apart from you. Now, when we read that, it appears to be saying that I have nothing in this life that's good except you. That's what it sounds like, right? I have no good apart from you. My marriage is not good. My job is not good. My, my car doesn't work well. It almost seems to be saying that I have no good except for you. I'm thankful that I have you. Well, the translation has a bit of a different take to it. it, it uh, and, and, and part of the reason we know this is, is, is the, 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 apparently you see, it's not quite the full meaning 
Because if we contrast what it says in verse 3 and where it says, all my delight is in the saints, okay, that could be confusing if we don't understand the text very well. Because he's saying, all my delight's in you. I have no good except for you. And now he's saying, I have some delight in, you know. As a matter of fact, he's, I don't want to look at verse 3 yet too much, but he says, all my delight is in the saints and the excellent ones. Well, that seems to be contradictory here. The Hebrew in its literal text, it, it's, it doesn't translate well in English, so that's why it was translated that way. But the, the original Hebrew, if it was literal, would be, go, my good things are not over or above you. That, that, so, so you have delight in the saints. You are thankful for your spouse. You love deeply your children. These are good things that you do delight in, but none of those things, all my good things that I have are not over you or above you. I don't put them before you. There's no other God. I have no idolatry in my heart. You see, our job can become an idol. Money can become an idol. Our children can become an idol. Our husband or our wife can become an idol. Anything you put before God can be an idol. And, and when the Bible talks about uh, have no other God before me, it can be taken two different ways. Don't bring those things into my presence as if they compare to me. Don't, don't let them uh, be in that place of being before me. Don't bring them before me. Or it could be said, you put them first ahead of me. And, and both of them are ways to look at this uh, understanding of, of, of uh, I have no good apart f- from you. It's, 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 it's what meaning there is, it's nothing I have is over you. Nothing I have is above you. You are first. You are preeminent. This is what it says in Colossians 1, 15 through 18, as the New Testament echoes the, the cry of David's heart here, saying, I have no good apart from you. And, and this, is, this is found in the preeminence of God. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all these things, and in him all these things hold together. And he is the head of the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so I thank God for my wife, but he's preeminent. I thank him for my four children, but he's preeminent. I thank him so much for my nine grandchildren, but he's preeminent. I thank you for the calling on my life to be in ministry, but he is preeminent. And that's what David is crying out for here. He's saying, Lord, it's in you. All my good things are in you. Nothing is above you. All I have, nothing is more lovely. Nothing is more desirable. Uh, Nothing is more than you. Uh, I do admit that there are things in my life that I love. There are things that, that that you have graciously provided, and I delight in these things greatly, but none of them. It ever rose to the level of competing with my delight and affection and honor for you above all things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. All these other things will be added unto you. The things added you can delight in, but not in comparison with the things, the, the very single thing of following, loving, honoring Jesus Christ as Lord. The, put these first two verses together, verse 1 and 2, and you, and you see something significant here. In verse 1, he says, uh, preserve me, O God. The, where he uses that word God there is the Hebrew word El, E-L, which means the omnipotent one, the, the powerful one, the mighty one. Uh, bring the power, bring the might. And in verse 2, he says, I say to you, Lord, that first word, Lord, there is Yahweh. And so he's saying, El, omnipotent, powerful God, 
I say to you, Yahweh. In other words, now he, now he takes it more personal. Yahweh is the personal name of God. It's that noun that, 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 that it's not a title or a description. It's his name. It's who he is. He is Yahweh. And so he's crying out to El, the omnipotent one. He's crying out to that personal noun, pronoun of God, who he is. And then he says, oh, I say to you, Yahweh, you are my Lord. And there he uses the word Adonai. Interesting, he uses three different words for God all in these two quick sentences. You are my El, my omnipotent one. You're my Yahweh. You're that personal, intimate, kiss the sun friend. And you're my Adonai. Adonai is the Lord, the master, the ruler of all things. And so he has the power to rule, but he does it in a personal way. And this is the protection. This is the keeping that we have by calling on the name of the Lord. That's where our salvation comes from. And so that's the first one is, is communion with God. The second one is he keeps us in community. He, he switches gears here real fast. He says, I have no uh, good apart from you, or uh, none of my good compares to the goodness that you are to me. But then he says, and the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He understands even before it was ever written, the great command that Jesus gave us, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse one, love God with all your heart. Verse two, and your neighbor as yourself. David's saying, I'm delighting in the saints. I, I delight in this place of communion. On the heels of this robust desire to be kept in vital communion with Yahweh, the psalmist moves quickly into a desire to have intimate communities surrounding him. The, this great command would be a part of his life, to love people well and to receive love from brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. Uh, on a recent podcast I did, I interviewed a young man who had written an article that said, you need more than God. And at first I was taken back by it. I, I said, I, I would disagree with that. You need more than God. Uh, and, and not by any means in our conversation were we diminishing the supremacy or the ultimacy uh, or the preeminence of God being first and foremost. But there is a, I would call it a romanticized version or a romanticized notion in the church today that is just me and God. It's just me and Jesus. We're, we're alone. Uh, he's all I need. And, and I understand what we're saying when we, and I wouldn't denounce the statement, he's all I need. But in, in him being all I need, he brings forth certain things that we need in our life. We, and we need Christian community. We need to be in fellowship. It cannot just be a mere God. You need more than God because God has said you need one another. Don't let the foot say, I don't need the hand, or the eye say to the ear, I don't need the eye. We need one another. We need God more than anything else. But secondly, in part of that same first command, we need one another. And until we get that ingrained in our thinking and in our, in our will and in our desires, we might end up just being trying to be alone with God. I, I can understand that. I enjoy my time alone with God more than anything else. But sometimes I have to get up and say, I'm going to love people as well. One of my favorite authors, I won't even mention his name. He was writing in the 1800s. And um, I just love his books. But then somebody wrote a biography about him and said, uh, he pastored many different churches. He, he kept getting dismissed from churches because all he did is stay in his study day after day. And then he'd get up on the Sabbath day or on a Sunday and he would, and he'd preach his text. But he never counseled. He never visited. He never evangelized. It was just him and God alone then a one time in front of the people. And because of that, he, he was socially inadequate, un, unable to pastor, unable to really actually be fulfilling 
his his call of the God on the call of God on his life to be a, a brother in Christ to to love one another. There are actually uh, fifty two different one another's. Some say maybe a little less or a little bit more, but as I study this, I round it off right about to fifty two different commands. To, to love one another, honor one another, esteem one another more highly than yourselves, pray for one another. This is, this is the, the, the commands of God. As much as study the scripture or, or call on the name of the Lord and be saved, this is, there's this command to, to be with one another. We cannot follow uh, the command by saying, I don't need them. We, part of the command is that we do need one another. Genesis 2, 18 starts off the, the, the whole of the, the text of scripture the canon of scripture by saying that God looks at Adam and says, it's not good that he's alone and I'll make him a suitable helper. It's, in other words, it's suitable for us to be with other people. It's not suitable for our life, our calling, our promises for us to do life alone, but we do life together. We do life in community. We need one another in the church. Verse four, I believe is highly connected to verse three. It's not another subject although it might sound like it because he's talking about the saints and how excellent they are and his soul delighting them. And then in verse four, he says, uh, but on the other hand, that, that's my phrase, uh, the text says, the sorrows, on the other hand, the sorrows in the text of those who run after another God, idolaters, the wicked, the ungodly, the, the sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out. I will not take their names on my lips. Verse 4 shows the negative contrast to verse 3. Not only are we called to exist, dwell, and excel in fellowship and love for one another and bonding our, knitting our hearts and binding our hearts together in love, not only are we called to that, but we're also called to run from wicked, communica- wicked uh, community, wicked connection, wicked. And it doesn't mean we have to go outside the world. We live in a world where we're going to rub shoulders with people that are ungodly, wicked, idolatrous, atheists, um, the sexually impure, immoral, drunkards, all these things that the Bible describes. We can't leave the world and escape them. But what we're doing is escaping them as those who would be our closest friends. Show me your five closest friends, and I will tell you what kind of person you are. If they're coarse jesting, if they're drunkards, if they or uh, lasciviousness, if they, if they go to church, but it's, they live in double-minded hypocrisy. If your four or five friends are like that, or if you have three friends that are sort of like this and two that are like that, there's a mixture. There's this combination of trying to, to fulfill verse three, but also having a foot in verse four, have, ha- having a foot in the world and having a foot in the fellowship of, of light. And, and the Bible makes this so clear. Corinthians chapter six, verse 14 through 18, what fellowship has light with darkness, what fellowship has has the immoral with the 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 moral, the, the godly with the ungodly? It, it's just these things are not meant to be. It's an accusation of somebody that would be living a life of mixture, a, a life of compromise. And it says here, the sorrows of those who run after another god uh, multiply. Their their sorrows multiply. You, they they think the other god is going to reduce their sorrows. They think that the drug is going to reduce their sorrows. They think that the divorce will reduce their sorrows. They think that the adulterous affair will reduce their sorrows, that the new love will reduce their sorrows, that the, the money will reduce their sorrows. Running after other gods will reduce their sorrows, but they find the opposite, that their sorrows are increased. The more other gods you chase after, the more your sorrows are multiplied 
flee from idolatry, run from it. Anything that comes into your life that begins to put itself in the measure of, of delight in your heart towards God, run from it, put it in its proper place. Or if it's wicked like this, other gods, literally, then, then, then run from them. David says, I'm not, going, I'm not going to fall for that. I, I delight in the excellent ones. Um, but, but, I, but I will not, if you look at Psalm 1, I won't sit, I won't stand, I won't walk in the, in the places, in the seat, in the paths of the ungodly. I, I, won't, uh, I won't walk in communion. And this, this, this desire in verse 3 and 4 here, for us to have communion, it's to have the right kind of communion. And, and we need this community, but we must guard ourselves from where we offer ourselves to that community or who we offer that hand, of our, uh, who, who we give ourselves to. In, in this pagan generation we live in, we must love people, but we must guard our heart not to give ourselves up to them in such a way that they rub off on us or we become ingrained in that kind of lifestyle. David says, their drink offerings and blood I will not pour out. What does this mean in our generation? I believe there's a blood offering being made in our society today. This blood offering is the offering of babies on the altar of Baal, on the, on the altar of idolatry, the, that, that, the, the altar of I need my life to be comfortable. I, I need to get rid of any inconvenience in my life. I can't suffer or endure any hardship. And therefore, the murder of unborn children is a blood being offered to idols. And David says, I, I won't pour that out. I won't engage in that. I won't become a part of that. I won't even take their names on my lips. It's so, so vile. It's so corrupt. And, the, and David's praying, Lord, keep me. And as he prays over his nation, Lord, keep us from the wickedness of, of and in our society, I believe David would be crying out, Lord, keep us from this perversity of, of, of abortion that's pervasive in the land today. 60 million plus have, have, have been killed since the institution of Roe versus Wade in our court system. Oh, but thank God, God, Here's the cry, keep us from the wicked one. Keep us from the plans of, and the schemes of, keep us from those who plot evil against us. And that has been overturned and there's new hope. There's still a lot of prayer to be made. There's still a lot of, of, of connection to God and, 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 and commitment to the cause that God has for us. But thank God he's on the move, hallelujah. So, so flee from, from idolatry, flee from the wicked one. The next, the, the, the third one we want to look at after uh, communion and community is our chosen portion. David is asking the Lord, keep us in our chosen portion. I don't want to live my life outside of your plans. I don't want this to be my chosen portion and then me to live in a desire for this portion. Lord, I want to desire what you desire for me. I want to live out the purpose and plans you have for me. The Lord, in verse 5, says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines, verse 6 says, The lines have fallen in pleasant places here. We see several things. One, first of all, is, is a chosen portion in life. And we need to be careful here that, that we don't choose our own portion, as I said. I, I choose this career over the one God has for me. I, I choose to, to live in this place. I, I choose to spend my money this way. That, that our chosen portion in life is Yahweh himself. He's crying out to the name Yahweh here, God himself, his friend. He's saying, God, I want you to be the portion. I want you to, and, and, and for my career, calling, family, life, marriage, I want you to choose that portion. 
out of you being my portion. I, I am in you, and all these things then come flowing out of that. Psalm 142 verse 5 says, says, in the land of the living, you are my portion. It's not just a portion coming when we die and we get to go to heaven. It's in the land of the living. This is good news. Oh, how thankful we are for one day being pain-free, sorrow-free, sin-free, and in eternity with Jesus Christ forever and ever rejoicing, having the most wonderful experience that we can't even imagine right now. Thank God for that. I cannot uh, express how wonderful that's going to be, but that doesn't mean that right here and right now we don't have a chosen portion, that God is with us now. Jesus is in us now. The Holy Spirit is empowering us now in the land of the living today where you live. He's your portion. He's providing for you. He's giving you a calling. He's giving you a a chosen place in life, a chosen family, uh, an, an inheritance. These are things for you. He goes on to say, and my cup. The Lord is not just my portion, but he's also my cup. Speaking of the cup of fullness, it's a heart full of the emotions of joy and life and delight. Psalm 23, 5 says, my cup runneth over with goodness and mercy. Man, that's powerful. All the days of my life, goodness and mercy will follow me. It's like a cup that overflows. It's not just sufficient but it's even flowing out to others, providing joy and life towards others. Yahweh is my portion, my chosen portion. I choose him above else. But Yahweh is also my cup. There's great things that fill my life. I'm delighted in the saints. I'm delighted in my marriage. I'm delighted in my children. But the greatest delight I have in my cup is that Yahweh is my cup. That's why David is saying here, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my cup. Many of us get that wrong, even it's preached in the churches today, that the Lord is one cup, and then prosperity is another cup, and then your de destiny is another cup. No, your, your cup is in Christ. It's in Jesus. All your springs of life are come and flow through him. But in that cup also is that blessings of the Lord, and of marriage, and of family, and of career, and of calling. But our, but our focus is not on those things. Our focus is not on the things that come from the cup. The focus is on... Jesus being the cup, and out of that flow rivers of living water. He goes on to say, you hold my lot. Lot in the Old Testament would speak of prosperity or land. Uh, but here David is saying, Yahweh is my lot in life. His greatest desire is the Lord, not the land. He had a great inheritance in the land. He, he When he became king, and he inherited a, a, a king's mansion and a king's property and and rule over a, a nation, but, he, but, he's, but he's delighting in the Lord, not the land. And I, I want to encourage you to delight in the Lord, not the land. Delight in the Lord, not the land. Delight in the Lord, not the land of your material blessing, not the land of physical uh, possessions, not the land of material goods, not the land of career advancements, but make your first delight, uh, your lot in life, your land is the Lord himself. He is your possession. Take hold of him. And then he goes on to say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What has fallen from God's hand upon me is pleasing to me. It's overwhelmingly good in my life. The, 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 this line and that line, this, this thing that has happened, the, the, the rain that falls from heaven upon me is a great blessing. Yet still he says, Yahweh, he is my pleasant place. He's the line that's fallen upon me. That is my joy. And then lastly, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. And he's not talking about an inheritance um, of money or fame or success, but, uh, but it's Yahweh is my inheritance. And not just my future inheritance, 
but also the inheritance of what we're about to read here in closing in just a moment in verses 9 through 11, which is the greatest part of this psalm, maybe the greatest part of, of, of much of the whole book of Psalms, when it begins now to turn into this prophecy about things that God has for us through the work of his son, Christ Jesus. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, but we see here, Yahweh is the, the portion, my chosen portion. Yahweh is my cup. Yahweh is my lot in life. Yahweh is my pleasant place. Yahweh is my full inheritance. And then he says in verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night and also my heart instructs me. This, this fourth one is he keeps us in counsel, not only in communion, not only in community, but he also gives us a place of communion, excuse me, of counsel with him. Praise God. In, in Psalm 13, verse 2, when David is troubled, he's saying, how long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face? How long, and he asks this, how long must I take counsel in myself? Part of his troubled soul that causes him to be, the next thing he says, my, I have sorrow all day all day long. My enemies are exalting over me. Part of his problem was that he was taking counsel in his own self. Now in verse uh, 7 of 16, he's saying, I bless the Lord. He's given me counsel. He's telling me where to go, what to avoid, who to be with, who not to be with. He, he's he's uh, and, and this is a striking contrast, 13.2 of Psalm to 16.7. And I want to ask you a question today. Are, are you more living in that Psalm 13 Two, where you're taking counsel in your own strength and your own understanding, or you have you surrendered and submitted to God where you're saying of him, I bless the Lord, it's he who gives me counsel. Even in the night when my heart might be troubled, my heart instructs me, it tells me to rest, to be peaceful, to have confidence, to confidence in the counsel of the Lord. In context for the counsel here, he's, <clears throat> he's saying, <clears throat> I, I give you counsel over your chosen portion over all the, the blessings. I give you counsel over how to have communion with me. I give you counsel how to be in the right community with godly people and how to avoid ungodly community of the idolaters, the wicked in the land. He's David saying, all these things that are promises, not only are they promises, but he gives me counsel of how to obtain them, how to possess them, how to have faith to enter into them. And we need counsel if we're going to find ourselves kept and preserved in all these things that God has for us. In verse 8, he continues in the text here, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be forsaken. The fifth one out of six that we're talking about today is keep, he keeps us confident in himself. We're confident in the Lord. I set the Lord always before me or I put my eyes are fixed on him, is, is what he, he's saying. In, in Psalm 13, 4, it says, uh, my foes rejoice over me because I am shaken. And the contrast here now is saying, uh, because I set the Lord always before me. I'm not looking at my enemies. I'm not looking at their victories or their triumphs or my victories over them. I just keep my eyes fixed. King Asa did this in the Old Testament when he was surrounded by millions of soldiers and there's no way humanly possible for him to win the battle. And, and he looks and he says, we know not what to, to do, but our eyes are fixed on thee. His eyes are looking to God. And when we do that, we, we, we set the Lord always before us that we won't be shaken, that we won't be shaken. In any circumstance, in any condition, you can live shaken free. You can stand firm. You can stand un, un, unflappable, unmovable because of what? Because you have strong willpower, 
because you memorize a lot of verses, because you go to church often? No, because you have set the Lord always before your eyes. You're fixed. Your gaze is on him, not your problems, not your circumstances, but on the things of Christ. There's a beautiful phrase here that oftentimes we can miss, and it says here, because he is at my right hand. The reason he's not shaken is because someone is at his right hand. Now, this is where part of this chapter begins to turn a little bit, and it begins to describe a prophecy about Jesus and his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. And the first part of this prophecy, which we'll look in just a moment, is found in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13, as both Peter and Paul uh, glean from this text. They, he, they take this text out and, and move it into New Testament times uh, and, and begin to describe for us that this is Jesus talking. And how powerful, as Jesus is saying here, I set the Lord, speaking of his Father, I set the Father before me at all times, and he is at my right hand. Now we know in Scripture that, the, that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, but look at this, Jesus is saying, in my time of trouble, in my hour of darkness, as I'm about to drink this cup and go to the cross, Father, you have come to me and you sit at my right hand. You, you have just for a second reverse roles, so to speak. And I don't mean that in the Trinitarian sense, but I mean it in the, in the, in the emotional sense that, that the Father just sits by his side and says, I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And out of that, fixing his eyes at that right, his right hand, he's able to stand strong and see the things that God has for him. And so he keeps us confident. I'm confident that I won't be shaken. I'm confident that you're going to be at my right hand. You're going to be at my right side. I'm confident that you'll keep me in communion with you. I'm confident that you'll keep me in the right community. I'm confident that you'll be my portion in life. I'm confident of all these things. And you can have confidence today in the things of the Lord by fixing your eyes on him. The last thing as we bring this to a conclusion today is, is the sixth one, and it's keeping us from corruption. And when I use the word corruption here, I'm not using it in a context of uh, a corrupt politician or somebody who's a corrupt financier, uh, corrupt in family life, uh, but death and decay and destruction. That's the Hebrew meaning here uh, of, of, of uh, verse 10 we'll look at in just a moment. But, but the idea of keeping us from corruption is is keeping us from sin and its penalty of death, of sin and its, our separation from God, of, of, of the corruption that comes from rebellion and causes us to, to depart as wicked people from a holy God, that causes us to be these things that we're about to read about, about being abandoned in hell, about seeing corruption. <clears throat> and so we come now to the core of this psalm. We come now to the most important part of this psalm. It's really what everything else has been after, the idea of communion and, and, and confidence and all these counsel, all these things we've just talked to you about. They are all wrapped up in this one thing that, that once we get this, all the other promises are unleashed on us. But if we miss this, all the other promises are insufficient. They, 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 we, we don't have them fully supplied to us. We do have them supplied to us because of what we're about to study here. What Jesus has done for us, we look at this verse. This verse is, 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 is quoted in Acts chapter 2. Turn there if you have your Bibles open. Go to Acts chapter 2. I want, to, I want us to put our eyes on this, to, to see the words on the page so that, they, that, 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 that not only they leap off the page, but maybe our heart would leap for joy as well. Verse 25 of Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's preaching. This is, this is his first sermon to preach publicly uh, since the Pentecost. Jesus has died and resurrected and and uh, has, has, he has shown himself to them. And now 
Uh, Peter stands and 3,000 people get saved in this day. And here's part of his sermon, verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you make known to me the fullness of the presence of joy. Brothers, verse 29, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and is in his tomb with us to this day. So in other words, he's saying, okay, Psalm 16 really isn't talking about David because his physical body, even though his spirit and soul didn't, but his physical body did see decay and, and corruption. So he can't be talking about himself here. So he's talking about being therefore a prophet. David, David was the prophet. He was prophesying about something else. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants, speaking of Jesus, the descendant of David uh, through Mary, set one of his descendants on the throne. Uh, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, and that he has not abandoned him to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted the right hand of God, having received for the Father of promise has poured out this which you see today in David. Um, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is powerful. God, God is bringing Jesus to his right hand, but on earth, the Father was there for Jesus. And now the same thing that we see in Christ, we receive as well. I don't take time, but Paul quotes this in Acts chapter 13, verse 34 through 37, preaching the same message, that, that it was David was speaking of Christ. Psalm 16 is a prophetic word of Christ. Most scholars and commentaries say not only is David preaching a prophetic word about Christ, but these were actually words of Christ. This is actually a future understanding of how Christ would pray to the Father. It was a foreseeing of the heart of Jesus, of the prayer of uh, of Jesus, we're, we're hearing the declaration of Jesus Himself. The the, the the that it's Jesus that is asking, keep me in communion with you, keep me in counsel, keep me in the chosen portion of you, Father. You're my Yahweh. You're the Father. <laughs> you see Jesus making these cries to the Lord. For you will not abandon my soul. Verse 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 ten says, you'll not abandon my soul to Sheol. Uh, you'll not let your holy one see corruption. Acts 2.24, as Peter is, is beginning to introduce his sermon about this chapter, he says, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. There's that word again, keep. Death could not keep him in the grave. Hallelujah. Uh, Satan could not keep his power uh, sufficient to affect his life and get his plan in, in motion, but rather God kept him. God kept Jesus. Uh, it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. Now Hebrews 6, we don't have time to turn there, but Hebrews 6, 18 through 20, talks about this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and says that Jesus is a forerunner or the first fruits, and then we are raised to life with him. So Psalm 16 is such good news for us because it's not just the Psalm of David, nor is it just the Psalm of Jesus that the Father was going to resurrect him, but it's our Psalm as well. We can read this and claim the same things. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells 
secure. For you will not abandon my soul to hell to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One, we can call ourselves Holy One in Christ, as we're grafted into him as our forerunner, our elder brother, the first fruits of resurrection. Uh, You will not let us, we're we're part of the Holy One who will not see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures evermore. This is a psalm of resurrection. This is the psalm of saving power. This is the song of the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and the, the, the ascension of Christ now at the right hand of the Father. And his inheritance is now ours. His cup is now ours. His chosen portion is now ours. Him being called the Holy One is our being called the Holy One. Him not seeing corruption gives us the ability to never see corruption. We don't have to fear hell. We have, as Hebrews 6, 18 through 20, concludes, it says, we have a sure and steady anchor. That's the perseverance. That's the keeping power. That's the preserving that God does for you and I. This is such good news. It's, the, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's Jesus praying over us, keep them, keep them, Lord. The ones you've given to me, keep them. And I, I believe with all my heart that every prayer that Jesus has prayed is yes and amen. The Father has never heard Jesus pray something and not given to him. Even when Jesus said, pray, let this cup pass from me. But then he says, but not the, my will, but thine. So he said, yes, I'll answer that prayer. Of it. We'll have the will of the Father take place in precedence here. And so every prayer of Jesus is yes and amen. Not one promise has fallen to the ground. And he has prayed over us. Lord, keep those. The only one that was was that was was that has gone from us is the one that was part of your plan uh, anyway, Judas, part of the, the 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 word of God from eternity past, and so for us, the the word of God is yes and amen. That that He has entered us into His family, and He's going to keep us in His family. He's entered us into salvation. He's going to keep us in salvation. He's entered entered us into comfort and peace and joy, and He's going to keep us into that. The fullness of joy, pleasures at, at His right hand forevermore. I would like to do one thing in closing, and then we'll pray. I want to read this one more time, and I want to read it rather than through the mouth of David, through the mouth of Jesus. He's praying this prayer. He's, he's declaring these things. He's saying, so be it. But then us praying this prayer, we're receiving these things through what Jesus, the elder brother, the forerunner, the, the first fruit. We're, we're entering into Christ. We're in him, and, and we are hearing him pray this, but we're praying in agreement with him. Look at Jesus say this. Preserve me, Father God. For in you I take refuge. He, he's knowing the time is to come, but, but I find my refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my God. I have no good apart from you. The, the life, This worldly life itself is not sustaining. Uh, I have life in you. Oh, as for the saints and the Lamb, my disciples, they are the excellent ones in whom my soul is delight. John 17 shows Jesus' delight over them, over you as well and me as well. Oh, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's not going to run from the cross to choose another God, the the satanic temptation to come after him. Verse 5, the Lord, in other words, Father God, you're my chosen portion. You're my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Knowing what his inheritance was, was, was being brought up from death. From, and into resurrection, and then bringing the family of God with him, the sons who he has chosen, his own inheritance. That, that is, his, his, his beautiful inheritance is, is you and I. So we hear Jesus say that, beautiful inheritance. Isn't that wonderful? He's talking about you. To me, that, that blesses me and comforts me so much. 
There, there's no problem, there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering, there's no difficulty that compares to knowing that I'm part of his inheritance, that he calls me a beautiful inheritance, and that, that I'm part of his pleasant place. And, I, and, and then Jesus goes on to say, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. He knows how to get through this. And, and in the night, my heart instructs me. In the night in which he was betrayed, his heart was being instructed by the Father to press on, to, to be faithful to the end. And, and so what he does, he says, because you instruct me, therefore I, 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 set, my, uh, I set my Father before me always because he's at my right hand. Uh, he's with me. I'm not going to be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. We, we want to echo these words with Jesus. Jesus is saying these words today. My heart is glad. Say that with him. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices, not just my religious part, not just my intellectual part. My whole being rejoices. Do you rejoice with Jesus today? And my flesh dwells secure the, the, the verse we looked at, if you didn't study with us, chapter 15, go back and look at that. The first verse there says, uh, who shall dwell in the holy hill? Jesus is saying, my flesh will dwell secure in that holy hill and, and my children, my inheritance, you with me in that holy place. You are in the holy of holies. You are beholding the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the truth of God. You have made, uh, you'll, you'll not let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. Uh, this is not uh, the making known to me how to live a better life. This is making known to me the path of getting out of corruption, getting out of Sheol, getting out of a, of, of, of a life of, of death and guilt and condemnation. And, and Jesus is saying, I can bring my brothers out of that, God, if you'll put their sin on me. And, and then I won't see corruption because you'll raise me up and neither will my brothers or sisters. You make known to me the path of life. That's eternal life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the land of the living and in eternity forever, you are preserved, you are kept by the power of God. No fear, no condemnation, no shame, no doubt, no discouragement, no giving up because he's keeping you. Don't let any of the pull of the world draw you back into those things. Keep strong, keep pure by keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, your elder brother, your forerunner. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would help all those who are listening, wherever they're listening right now, whether it be in their car, in a studio, my friends at Teen Challenge who listen to these videos, I, I pray in the name of Jesus, God, that they would never draw back, uh, uh, but always realize that you're praying over them to be kept, and that prayer is going to be answered. You're going to keep them. They can have a confidence, a bold confidence, a secure place a secure place in you. Lord, you're like a tree and they are branches grafted in. And Lord, you, you are not the one to kill branches or destroy branches. It's, it's Lord, when we don't have faith or we pull away and we thank you, God, that you keep us in that place. You keep us secure. You keep us attached to you. That's your promise of keeping power. Perseverance of the saints is the perseverance that comes from you. You give us the power, the faith to preserve. And then there's perseverance. We, we can persevere. We can, we can endure. We can stay faithful because you have kept us uh, with this blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we thank you that we will not fall to the left or to the right. We will not stumble. We will not give up. We will not surrender. Not because we will it to be, but Lord, you have made it possible by grafting us in by making us brothers of Christ, sisters of Christ, so that we follow him. Yes, Lord, death to the old self, newness of resurrection life. 
Oh, and out of that, Lord, these eternal blessings, promises that we talked about today, we, we receive them by faith and we claim them as being done. They are yes and amen and they will not falter or fail. We can boldly say yes to these things that God has promised us today and leave this uh, message today with fullness of joy and abundant life and sorrows and sighing just flee away and you put a new song in our heart today. We give thanks in Jesus' name, amen. Hope you enjoyed Psalm 16. Join us again very soon for Psalm 17. Hope you are enjoying this series and getting fed from it. And we pray that you'll look at the, uh, this is the second segment. The first was chapters one through 12, and those are all available at World Challenge or on YouTube. And at worldchallenge.org, we also have a workbook of Psalm one through 12, and we're working on 13 through 24 now, and so that'll be available uh, quite soon as well. So God bless you, and uh, may the Lord keep you in the palm of his hand.